PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Don't know what that is? Go to LogRocket.com. Thanks. Welcome to Pod Rocket. Today, I'm here with Mark Delglaish, um, who's the creator of Vanilla Extract, a really cool CSS tool. And uh, Mark, you also created CSS modules as well, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say co-created. It's always a, a bit of a team effort. But uh, yes, yes, I've, I've had a big involvement in both of those uh, technologies. So maybe we start um, with just a quick primer to CSS modules, because um, I think it's kind of foundational to an extent to vanilla extract and it seems like vanilla extract kind of builds on that work but css modules i uh, i used it a long time ago but i don't remember entirely um so maybe you could give us and for folks who haven't used it before you could give a quick primer to to kind of the problem css module solves and how you use it yeah sure so i mean people that have been working in the css space for a long time know that it's really hard to scale css uh and you know jumping forward a bit there's been a big rise in component systems. So people trying to figure out how do we scale UI just generally, not just CSS. And then you have this question of, well, how does CSS fit into a component system? And it seemed to me like the best answer to that question was uh, the the BEM methodology, block element modifier, which is effectively just, when it comes to CSS, it's effectively just a naming convention to say, this piece of CSS belongs to this part of the UI, so we're going to prefix it. You know, if it's a button, let's say it belongs to a button, we'll put button at the start of every class name and then a couple of underscores. And then that gives you scoping effectively. It says this CSS belongs to this component. Um, the problem with that, I guess, at scale is it's, is it's really just a convention. So you need to, first of all, make sure everyone knows to follow this convention. Or maybe you have some linting rules that that I've seen people do this, right, where they'll, they'll say, if the class names in this file do not start with the file name or whatever it is, then it will be an error. Um, so th- there's ways you can kind of do it manually. Um, CSS modules is effectively saying, you know, we, we believe in that philosophy so much that it should just be the way CSS works effectively, that if I write a class in this file, it be- it is locally scoped to that file and effectively becomes like an export from that file. So then the other side of the equation is, okay, how do you actually enforce that? So if, instead of instead of writing button at the start of all of my class names, I can leave that out. How do, how do we make sure that there is that that mapping of the styles to the, the file name? And the way that it works is on the other side, right? Like, so in, in the component system, you're going to have a JavaScript file that, that well, if, if you're in a JavaScript UI context, that's where we've been working. So something like React, um, it was what we were working with. You've got your JavaScript, like React component, and it had a dependency on the CSS file. So when we were doing it manually, um, we were using Webpack, which lets you, you know, which is a module bundler. It lets you, it lets you declare these relationships. So you can say my component depend, you know, button.js depends on button.css to work. Like if it is a, it is a, is a, it's a strong dependency there, right? Where like if the CSS doesn't come along for the ride, this component's not going to work. It's going to be broken. So what's cool about Webpack is it lets you say at the top of your file, like, import the CSS file. Um, what we would do th- with CSS modules instead was basically say like, you actually have to import the class names from the file. 
um, because the class names are going to be hash, like garbled. Like it's not something you would type by hand. You have to get, you have to explicitly get the reference to the to the class name. And so what's cool about that is you, you know, when you run run all these things together, um, you know, you have to import the class names that, that you're going to use, and they're not human readable. You, you're forced to import them. You can't sort of, you can't kind of opt out and type it manually. You have to import it. Um, it, it means that you get much higher maintainability on your code because now it's not a convention you have to follow. It's like enforced by the technology itself. And when you're operating at scale, especially, at, you know, when you're talking about companies where there's a lot of mixed skill sets, not everyone's a CSS expert, like these sorts of things really, really help because now CSS just works in a maintainable way by default and you don't have to sort of remember to do it. And um, I think that's why we saw so much popularity with CSS modules because, it just made CSS kind of work in in a, in a better way, but otherwise it just felt like CSS to people. It wasn't this radically different, didn't feel like this radically different technology. Got it. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but with CSS modules, you, you're always writing your CSS as CSS, right? It's not kind of what has now become kind of the norm, I guess, which is to write CSS in JS or CSS in TypeScript, which I guess we're going to talk about soon. Um, so you, you write vanilla CSS or I guess, did you, does, can you do like SAS or, uh, SCSS with C- CSS modules? Is that compatible? Yeah. So that, that's one of the, the big advantages of that approach is it really, uh, slots in well with the rest of the CSS ecosystem because Webpack, you know, tools like Webpack, um, you know, they let you chain loaders together and you can say, I want to run it through SAS loader before it goes through CSS loader with CSS modules enabled. Um, and so then you can, you, and you can plug post CSS in there and get auto prefix or whatever it is. And so it means that, you know, I think that's why a lot of, it hits that sweet spot between the two ecosystems because you might be into react and that sort of thing, but you still might be into the broad, broader CSS ecosystem and that the two, the two connect really well in, in, in that regard. And so it, it felt like a very, in that way, it's like the safest choice. Um, cause you're not, you're not kind of leaving one ecosystem for another. You get to bring the two together. So I guess the the question then is like, what are the downsides to CSS modules that led you kind of down the path of building something new? Yeah, like so we we started a, a, a design system where I work at Seek. Like um, it was actually our second take at a design system that was because um, it needed to be themable. And um, what what I was really keen on was this idea of like trying to hang on to CSS modules and this, this, the fact that there's a zero runtime cost because we were already invested in that in that technology at, at scale. And um, the way we were kind of doing it was eff- effectively, like if you think of the way Tailwind works, it's the easiest point of comparison for me, is um, you know, you, you've got all these, these, these low-level classes that are based on some design rules that you've set up in the in the context of Tailwind. It'll be in your config, like you've said. Here's my space scale. Here are my colors, and so on. That's effectively your theme. Um, what we did is we 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 kind of set it up so that CSS modules would create a theme, and we could swap out a collection of low level classes that were a CSS module, and that was like your theme. But the I guess the 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 thing is like we were taking CSS modules to the absolute extreme in terms of trying to make it themable. Um, the key thing though is, is I should say um, this was quite a while ago where we needed to support IE 11. So we couldn't use CSS variables that that might be, you might be thinking, why not just do CSS variables? So the, this predated that. Um, and um, so we, 
as a team, we created this solution called Treat, which is like the precursor to, to vanilla extract. And what it, that was more coupled to Webpack. And it let us effectively um, write our styles in TypeScript, but um, generate multiple sets of styles. And, and the re- I guess the reason we went down this road is that like we were feeling like, you know, in the world of components, like the, the boundaries between your CSS and your JavaScript start to break down. And that's the, maybe the controversy of it, right? Is that some people really don't like these boundaries coming down. But to me, like, it makes a lot of sense that, like, you still have this separation of CSS and JS and HTML at the component level, but the, they, they kind of need to talk to each other and then you compose up at a higher level at the component layer. And um, what we found is that, for one thing, that the context switch of, of going between languages was really difficult. Like if you think about what, what's really great about Node, right, from a JavaScript developer's perspective is you can jump between these radically different domains, front end, back end, and you're just sharing code between them, utilities, you know, data, whatever it is. And there's not this feeling of, you know, radically different worlds. Like what I really liked about working in, in JavaScript or TypeScript in our case was that you know, we, we could share design tokens easily between the CSS and the JavaScript. We could um, we could write logic very quickly and easily that iterates over those tokens and output CSS and not feel like it, it's just this complete context switch. Um, we'd done similar things before in less. Um, and I personally, I found like it was much harder for me to work with than JavaScript and not not due to lack of experience. I just found like, especially as we moved into TypeScript, like it's just a much nicer, I find much a nice, nicer language to work with. Um, and so that, you know, that's one big advantage. Um, and the, the second part of it is I've touched on it briefly is, is the type safety. So I, you know, I, I've never been big on type safety from a purist standpoint. I've always looked at it from a pragmatic point of view. And what brought me to TypeScript was working with design systems and having, you know, creating design systems that other teams then have to consume, having that boundary be type checked is very, very valuable. Because if, if we ship a breaking change to other design system, when we when our system was in JavaScript, which it was, it you know, previous uh, earlier on, um, if we shipped a breaking change to an API, consumers would only know about it by reading the release notes very carefully and making sure they've you know. They've read every point, and if there's something that broke, they had to make sure they read it, understood it. If there's a migration guide, they have to meticulously like follow the guide, and if they didn't, something will break. And um, that was what got me into the, the world of type safety. Was was like, okay, it makes so much more sense that we can ship an update, still have the release notes and everything. You, you know, you still do that, but it means that if they don't update their code to match the new version, like their project won't build and it'll, t- and it'll pinpoint, you know, this exact component, like that prop's not a thing anymore. You need to update that. Um, and it's really hard to argue with that. You know, when it, people debate JavaScript versus TypeScript. Like I find it's like, it, it's kind of impossible to ignore at scale, like the benefits of that. Right. And um, so I came into, into it with that headspace. But like, what's interesting is I feel like once you get bitten with the bug of type safety like that, you find it just starts to spread everywhere. You're like, what I want anything that's not type safe in my project. I suddenly feel like it's risky code. Like I could, you know, if I change my style sheet and I don't update my, um, you know, my UI code, um, you know, if I change, you know, any of these relationships, you want them to be type checked. And um, that was really pushing us towards getting our style sheets to be written in TypeScript as well. So that, you know, if, let's say we update our design tokens in a central place that's consumed by our 
runtime, like view code, and also by our style sheets, like both of those parts of our code base will be telling us, hey, you're referencing, you know, design tokens that don't exist anymore, or they've changed or whatever it is. And so, you know, if we were still working in less, for example, we wouldn't have that benefit. And so that's what really started pushing us more and more towards having this unified type checked language where we can easily share across these boundaries and, and not, not feel like we're working you know, I'm trying to build a component, but I keep having a context switch between radically different environments. And as I understand it with um, with vanilla extract, you kind of have these tools out there like CSS modules and stuff, which are you're shipping a dynamic CSS engine to the client. With vanilla extract, like CSS modules, at build time, you generate static CSS, correct? Yeah, like that. that's that's the thing. Like, like while I'm definitely not against runtime CSS and JS engines, you know, in the browser, um, I think they're very cool and they can do things that we can't do by by virtue of the fact that it's happening at runtime. Um, our experience was that, you know, like I, I think it's because we built up a system around CSS modules early, we had come up with other solutions to the problems of not having a runtime. And so to me, I mean, I keep I keep um, referencing Tailwind, but I think it's the best, um, you know, open source example of this philosophy, which is if, if you think about how something like Tailwind works where you've got these low level atomic classes, you've got a class for padding top, large padding top, medium or small, or they'll have different terminology, right? But you've got, you've got micro classes for each, you know, value. Um, If you then think about, okay, I'm writing something like a react component that's dynamically switching out these classes. If you squint, right? Like it kind of is like a runtime CSS and JS engine in a way, right? Because you can have a prop on your component drive how much padding is on the left of this component, right? And 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 that that's ultimately, I think, in the vast majority of cases, that's what people are actually looking for in a runtime CSS and JS system. They're trying to say, I just want to be able to say, based on this prop, change the background color, change the border, change the padding, change the whatever. Um, and if you do that with traditional CSS, the way you typically write it, you know, with classes with a bunch of rules attached to it, that gets frustrating, right? Because you're like, well, I, I kind of have all these different moving parts of my component and I just want to make bits of it dynamic. The the runtime CSS and JS solution is one answer to that, but the atomic CSS approach is another way to do it. And I find what's great about it is it's, is it forces you to, it has a separate benefit in my mind, which is it encourages you to follow standards as well, because you're saying, well, rather than just making the padding dynamic and calculating it on the fly based on something like here's a palette of paddings that we've sort of agreed up front is our white space scale, pick something from this. And there's already a class for it. Like it's already, the work's already been done. And so then you get the benefit of like, well, there's actually no runtime beyond the, you know, the UI code switching out the classes. You get the consistency of, you know, devs aren't just making up padding values whenever they hit a, you know, the need for some padding. Um, and, um, and, it, and it means that, yeah, like the, suddenly the, the runtime cost just drops to basically zero from a CSS perspective. And um, so that, that's kind of been our approach, right, is to say, we, what we want to do is generate as much sort of low-level palette-based styles up front. We bind that to a component as well. We have a box component, which is effectively like a component version of something like Tailwind where it'll have a padding top cl- um, prop on it. So you can say box padding equals small, and it'll just pull up the class that's already been built. And this is where we like the TypeScript side of the style equation because we generate all of these styles in TypeScript based on you know, 
objects that define the theme. And um, it, we find it's just very easy and natural for us to iterate over objects in TypeScript and have it all in, and the interfaces are all type checked and everything. And that follows, flows through into the components. And so, yeah, for us, that's really what it's about is saying, you know, how do we get at the same benefits of runtime CSS and JS without having the same cost? And maybe in some ways helping solve other problems that it has, which is, you know, if you can just write whatever styles you want, it, it tends to become a bit of a spaghetti mess over time. And we want to, we actually want to bring it down to like, here's a core set of styles we want to reuse. So taking a step back, like, you know, kind of on the the question of like writing CSS, CSS, or CSS and JS, or CSS and TypeScript, like remember a number of years ago, maybe five years ago, whenever like the, whenever the paradigm of CSS and JS was first coming out, like one of the kind of criticisms of writing CSS and or there's a couple of criticisms people had originally like one is just like a lot of people, especially designers are often very fluent in CSS, maybe less so when you're writing CSS and JS. Um, you know, there's a lot of editor tools like built into VS code or sublime or whatnot that help you write CSS really quickly that don't quite understand that you are writing CSS and JS. Um, there's design tools that can spit out preformed CSS often. So I'm curious, like, do some of those concerns still exist? And like, I remember when CSS modules came out, like it was awesome because you were writing CSS, but got a lot of the benefits of componentization and working, it you know, worked well with React. So I'm curious, like kind of do those concerns still exist in 2021? Has tooling caught up? Has Have kind of people gotten used to CSS and, and JS or, or TypeScript enough? Or kind of what's your, your thought on that? This is a really interesting question because there's definitely a tension here I think around the quality of the the code base that you're working in versus its integration into other tools it's it's a really tricky one I I should probably say like a lot of what I'm saying is hinging on a certain philosophy which I've, I've touched on a little bit which is going all in on components and so my my view is that you know we're still working our way towards this right but like the 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 goal for me of designing in code, which, which that in and of itself is a goal to me. Like I, I, I want to, I want to be able to iterate on a product in code as much as possible. And you know, there's obviously going to be always going to be a place for more conceptual work or freeform exploration or whatever it is. But your your sort of day to day work where you're like, I'm just designing a form in a card, or, you know, with some buttons at the bottom. Like it's a very standard thing. I don't really want to see work like that happening. At, at a low level, you know, in a, in a design tool where you can kind of do anything or even in CSS where you can equally do anything. Like ideally something like that in an, in an established system, you're not even writing CSS at all. Like why would I write CSS for things that are just run-of-the-mill standard things on my site or my app? And so to me, the where we're trying to head to is that, you know, we're trying to make component systems and design tools should be based around components. And, and I think that's the movement we're seeing is, component-based design tools, they, they don't actually care how your components are built. They can be built with vanilla extract or CSS modules or runtime things or Tailwind or whatever. They, they don't actually care. All they care about is that you have um, a, a set of components built on top that has a sensible, you know, design-oriented API. And, and to me, that's what you're supposed to be giving to, you know, in, in this new world we're heading into, this is what you hand to your designers. It's like, here are the Lego blocks that we've prepared. If, there, if there's anything missing, obviously we have a conversation and say, and to me, that's the benefit of, of these design tools, right? Is it actually gets designers and developers better aligned. I've never been a fan of like, 
here's a big blob of CSS to give to your developers, like problem solved. At least the developers I've worked with don't, we don't like that at all because it's like, well, we don't think about it that way. Like it's, we don't just copy and paste big blobs of CSS and go job done. Like we actually try to architect it properly. Um, So as we've moved more and more towards component systems, um, and we um, we might go into more detail, but like we we have our own um, component based design tool that lets you write in JSX called Playroom. We've been using that internally a bit, and we find like designers themselves have been who who have got into this space have said, I actually find this makes handover. Uh, as much as I don't like that term, uh, you know, it makes handover much better with developers because now they're saying like it's a stack of cards with this much space and inside there's a stack of, you know, text fields or whatever. And like they're using the same terminology as, as the developer, like, and then the developers can copy and paste that into their app. And it is actually like, it, it is actually at the level of abstraction that they would have written it themselves more or less. They might, it, there's always going to be a need for a bit of cleanup or maybe they'll say, okay, the, um, maybe they've written in a way I wouldn't have written it, but it's way closer to what the developer was going to write than like a big blob of CSS um, out of a tool like Zeppelin, let's say, where the, the developer was not going to, in a component system, the developer was not going to write a bunch of low-level CSS on some divs. Like that's just not how they operate. And um, so to me, that then that then changes the equation around what you're saying around, you know, how much can I lean on traditional tools like developer tools that let me just edit raw CSS directly? Um, you know, how does that fit into a component system? And so I, I think, um, you know, I think the tooling needs to shift to accommodate. So for example, you may, instead of using the CSS uh, inspector to play around with the design, you might want to actually use the React. If, you, if, you have, if you're using React, obviously it could be different tools. In our case, it's React. Um, you know, if you could use the React dev tools to inspect the component tree and change the props, right, rather than the CSS. Because in theory, like that's the level of abstraction you're supposed to be designing at. And what is um, Sprinkles? I'm curious, you know, uh, Sprinkles and Dessert Box, everything is, uh, is food themed here, I guess. But uh, tell, me about, tell me about kind of those abstractions and how they, they fit into uh, vanilla extract. Yeah, so I, I talked earlier about, you know, our philosophy of saying, you know, having these low level atomic classes that you can swap in and out. Um, that is really just an opinion, like an architectural opinion, though, on top of whatever CSS engine you have underneath. So the, the separation is kind of like this, like vanilla extract is like your is almost like your SAS and CSS modules in one. It's like a it's like a preprocessor where except TypeScript or JavaScript is your preprocessor and it outputs, you know, locally scoped classes. But beyond that, it's it's completely on you kind of what to do with it. Again, just like if you were using SAS. It's like whatever architecture you use is that's on you. Um, Sprinkles is our opinion of of how to have like low level atomic classes built on top of that system. So I keep using this comparison, but like you can think of Sprinkles as like a like a tailwind light, where it's like plug in your config into this library and it will spit out like a function, um, which we call the Adams function, and it's. It's basically the equivalent of if, if you're, I'm, I'm obviously here assuming people understand what Tailwind is, but, you know, in Tailwind, you write a string of classes, which is like, here's how much, you know, I want padding top of this. I want padding bottom of that. I want background of this. Um, it's the same concept, but we, I mean, again, I said we're big on type safety. In our case, rather than being a long string, it's like an object where you'll say the padding is this and the background is that. What's cool is that it's all type safe. So based on your config, 
if you say background, you know, is uh, sea green and it's, and that's not actually in your palette, it'll be like, sorry, type error. Like that's not one of your backgrounds. Um, and, uh, but so that what's cool about it is it ends up with the same thing effectively as Tailwind, which is, you know, you pass in an object with, you know, all of the, the low level style properties you want. You can't, um, you can't do silly things like the, the Tailwind, things like Tailwind let you do where you could say, you know, padding top is small and padding top is also large. It's like, well, hang on, which one's going to win? Um, you know, in our case, because we, um, because of the, the higher level interface on top, we can, we can make all that, that safe. But then out the other end comes a big string of classes. So if you've, if you've said that the padding is, is small, you'll actually get a padding top class, a padding bottom class, padding left class, padding right class is a string coming out the other end. Um, and uh, that's, that's the way we tend to write most of our styles in our system is we lean on these, this, this sprinkles. Uh, it's sort of like, it's effectively like a framework. We lean on this framework for, for most of our styles. And, um, you know, you mentioned dessert box. That's actually like a third party library. Um, we, we, we've rolled our own equivalent in our system, but the, the idea is basically like, I actually want to take that and map it to a component. I mentioned before we have our box component. That's, that's what the dessert box is alluding to is, is the box component. Um, because it's like, yeah, if you, if you're in a component system, it's useful to have a component, which is just your low, low level element render effectively, which which binds all of your CSS rules, uh, like atomic CSS rules to a type safe component. So then, you know, th then you, it, like I said, you, you, you end up feeling like you have a runtime CSS and JS library because you can have a, a component that just dynamically swaps out all these styles, but it's all just mapping to this uh, sprinkles based framework underneath, which sits on top of uh, vanilla extracts. So there's no runtime cost to any of this. So what's the future of vanilla extract? Like is the tool more or less complete or do you have things on, you know, that you want to build out moving forward? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it, it has a lot of potential. It depends on, on what people want to do with it. Like we, we've very much built up everything we need around it. Um, what's, um, what's cool about it to me is, is that, I like I, I've compared it to CSS modules, right? Like there's, there's probably one thing I've sort of haven't touched on is, is how it's actually a lot more powerful than CSS modules in the sense that, okay, if, if we, if we look at a CSS module and you, you know, it looks like a CSS file, you write a bunch of classes in there. Um, all of those classes are like implicit exports. So if I write, you know, um, dot, you know, a class of dot a and a class of dot B and dot C, right. I, when I go and import my styles, on, from the JavaScript side, I've just got a single flat set of imports. I've got styles.a, styles.b, styles.c, right? Um, and that's actually one of the things that we found difficult to work with with CSS modules. Because if you want to do atomic styles where you've got like effectively within one within one file, you've got subsets of styles, like namespaces, like you might have your padding styles, you've got your margin styles, you've got your backgrounds, your borders, whatever. Um, you kind of want all of them to be isolated into like, like nested, you want to be able to say like styles dot background dot whatever and have, because that, that's how you, that also helps with the type safety angle, because it's like, then you're limited to like, what, what are my backgrounds? What are my borders? And so on. That was one of the things that, that led us towards breaking away from CSS modules, because we wanted to have more fine grained control over exactly what we're exporting from our style sheet. Like we want to be able to create a bunch of styles that are our backgrounds and then go export const background equals, you know, an object of, of styles. Um, and what's interesting about that is it means that like that, that's actually what allows sprinkles to work. Um, because 
with sprinkles, what you're doing is you're actually like um, creating like a data structure, which is like everything you need to do that mapping at runtime. Cause it needs to know like, what are your backgrounds? What are your borders and so on? And, and um, it needs to know like, what are my defaults and things like, does it have a default? Um, what are the names of my breakpoints? All the, like all this, all this um, data. So you, with, with vanilla extract, you can export it, The way to think about it is you can export like whatever JSON you want from a style sheet. And so that that's what, like that's what allows you to build these higher level abstractions, even though you're still operating in the, in that world of like, I have my style sheet. Like we still talk about style sheets, right? Even though it's in TypeScript, we still talk about this idea of like, I have my style sheet. It's all statically built at runtime. I'm it, it's, it's this really powerful mechanism that lets it with the, with the JSON exports that lets you kind of invent whatever, whatever you want to communicate from the style sheet to your runtime, you can pass over that bridge. Um, now, the reason I raise that, I guess, is like to, the way I view that is it's like it's just this building block that means you can you can actually do lots of interesting things, things I couldn't even think about. I, like I'm so you know tunnel vision on the specific things I'm building, but you know it's it's worth thinking about. Like if you could communicate if you, in, in, if you were in a system like SAS and CSS modules, but you know you, you take the constraints off and you're like I can actually export any static data I want from my style sheet over to my runtime, like what sort of frameworks and things can I build with that? Like different people will have different ideas. Um, in, in, in terms of what we're doing, like I'm really happy with where we've landed. And, and like, I, I find that what it lets us do is focus more on the component layer. And so, yeah, to, to me, like that's really the, the focus, I guess, is trying to figure out how do we, how do we make our style sheets as expressive as possible, but keep that type safety, send stuff over the bridge to the runtime. And um, you know what can we build with that? I I, I still I I'm, I still want to be like surprised with with things people are building. So hopefully this encourages someone listening to be like, yeah, I'm going to have a think about what I can do with this. Well, speaking of uh, you know folks out there listening that are interested in vanilla extract, um, yeah, you can get started at vanilla vanilla dash extract dot style. Definitely a bit of a mouthful on the domain there, but um, I, I guess dot, I didn't even know dot style was a was a, a TLD, but I guess it is. Um, so vanilla dash extract dot style. Um, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. And um, yeah, take care. Thank you for having me. Hi, thanks for listening. Um, please remember to like, subscribe, uh, email me if you want, even though none of you do. Go to logrocket.com and, and try it out. It's free to try. Then it costs money, but yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>